0: The election is just round the corner. The outcome will determine the future of the country and the shape of the economy. At the time of recording, almost all the parties have released their manifestos, running to a total of 430 pages so far, with more to come. So what are the parties planning to do if they win power? How radical are their policies? And what are the differences in their economic agenda? It's the Weekly Economics Podcast. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. And this week, it's our election manifesto special. Stay with us. This is our last episode of 2019, and we're going out on a high. I'm really pleased to be joined by Anoush Shekelian, Britain editor of the New Statesman and co-host of the excellent New Statesman podcast. Welcome, Anoush. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. And also joining me, returning lovely friend of the pod, Mieta Fambula, Yes, yes. Uh, Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation. Welcome back to the pod. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Okay, so we're going to dive in. Um, but two quick notes before we get started. So we're recording this, lovely listener, on Tuesday, the 26th of November. So there might be announcements of other developments between now and when this episode comes out. Uh, don't ask. We already know that one of those developments will be the launch of the SMP manifesto, which at the time of recording is being published today. But they've made some announcements already, so we can discuss those. Um, and the New Economics Foundation, Foundation is a charity, which means that we're not going to be giving any opinions on this episode about the parties or the candidates, at least we'll try not to. Uh, what we are going to be doing is covering the policies and helping you make sense of them and analyse which ones would help, say, protect the planet or build a more equal society and give everyone a say in how the economy is run. Or not. Okay, so <laughs> uh, so we're going to start off with a general one. In a moment, we're going to go party by party and do a bit of a deeper dive. And then we'll look at climate right at the end. But before we do that, in general, looking at the economic approach from the main parties, what do you think is the big story of this election so far? Miata, let's start with
1: you. So I think for me, the big story is this was supposed to be a Brexit election. And actually, it's Mm -hmm. been about everything but Brexit. We've been talking about public spending. We've been talking about borrowing. We've been talking about investment. We've been talking about climate change. And for me, I think it's kind of instructive. I think in the end, it's talking about the issues that the country wants to talk about. It's talking about the issues that people care about, you know, public services on their knees. Um, And, you know, I think in there is a real opportunity because across the political spectrum, I think people are having to confront the reality of the challenges that we face. Um, And, you know, I think some parties have responded perhaps um, more boldly and ambitiously than others, but there is now a genuine debate about the nature of our economy, the nature of our public services, the fact that living standards, quite frankly, have been frozen for well over a decade. And I think our politics has to start confronting that. And that's what we're starting to see in this election. And I think we're going to have more of same in the years to come. Mm. Anoush, what do you reckon?
2: Well, I think the most interesting thing for me from this election is that I feel like it's the first time in my lifetime where I'm voting between or choosing between two very different visions yeah. for the for the long-term future of our country. You could say that it was the same thing last time, but I think both of the party, the main parties, now have um rather different Brexit policies, which I didn't feel last time. And so now we're sort of voting for that, either Boris Johnson's vision for Brexit, which is a hard Brexit, and from what I can tell from the manifesto, a sort of continuity of austerity, given the lack of sort of uh, public spending that he was sort of promising in his leadership campaign, and in the and in the build up of the election campaign until that manifesto came out that didn't show very much of a vision for spending. And mm-hmm. then you've got Jeremy Corbyn's vision for the country, which as you've just laid out is is a huge, you know, radical upheaval, um, a sort of different vision for how the economy's run. Mm-hmm. So I think that gives voters a real choice, which democratically is a good thing. But when you go out on the doorstep, which we've been doing a lot as a team at the New Statesman, people seem not to be enthused by that opportunity that they have. So I think it's mm-hmm. about communicating that to voters, because at the moment, it's, oh, you know, I'm fed up with it. I can't believe we have to go out and vote again. Mm. I don't like the way that I see MPs behaving on TV. You know, there's not that much enthusiasm for either of the two main party leaders, which which I've heard when I've been out um, reporting in different constituencies. And so it's strange that that translation of this sort of most important, Election in terms of our future hasn't quite sort of made it into people's um, sort of appetites to go out and vote yet.
0: And, and f- from the door knocking stuff you've been doing, would you agree with uh, what Miata was saying that Brexit is not as high on the agenda as we would have thought?
2: I actually think that's true. So you'll, whenever I interview a Conservative candidate in a seat, they like to repeat the slogan that I won't say on on this podcast, mm-hmm. but and say this is what everyone's telling them on the doors. But even when you go round those same doors or in the same town or or you know speak to people in the area that's not what people are saying even if they're saying they'll vote from, vote conservative i don't think this is a this is a brexit election but i think the the looming prospect of brexit if uh, the conservative party wins uh, makes it a sort of election about our futures in in a way that we've not had an election before
0: Mm. Well, I want to dive into the Conservative Manifesto in a second, but just before we do, Miata, in, in terms of looking across the parties at the moment, would you say that there's more alignment than maybe we expected at what's coming out in the different manifestos or are, are they all, are they really radically different?
1: So I think um, if you'd asked me this question um, before the Conservative Party Manifesto came out, I would have said actually there's been a big shift. So you take something like social housing, yeah. right, which for a really long time, no one was really talking about social housing. And we had Labour coming out with 150,000 homes a year. The Lib Dems, 100,000 homes a year. I think the Green Party was sort of similar numbers um, and, and actually a sense that you need the public sector to build again. You know, that's a big shift from where we were. The climate is another area where, again, people are talking about a Green New Deal or Green um, Industrial Revolution, big sums. Mm. I think the thing that's really strange is actually the Conservative manifesto, rather Other than... You know, my sort of read of the other parties is actually they recognise that there is we're at a crossroads and there are big challenges and they are trying to step up to that. And actually, the thing I found really strange about the Conservative manifesto is that it seems completely in denial of the realities out there and it's gone for a very slow as you go, cautious business as usual mm. type of manifesto. And the politics felt like it was changing from that. And that's the thing that I found quite disappointing.
0: Mm. So let's yeah, let's dive into the the Conservative manifesto because how how I guess rather or not, is, is the manifesto that's come out. Because I think one of the things that seemed to me true of it was it was trying to lean into this Britannia unchanged narrative of, you know, Brexit is going to be the thing that opens the floodgates and means that we can live up to this unrealized potential. So is there any of that?
2: I think that those Tory MPs, many of whom are in the cabinet now who initially wrote the Britannia Unchained sort of vision for our country will probably be quite disappointed by this mm. manifesto because not only is it not radical in a libertarian way, you know, Boris Johnson ditched yeah. his pledges to Tory members when he was running for uh, running to be the party leader about cutting corporation tax and also taking that higher uh, mm. tax band up for higher earners. He, he ditched those two things. Um, but also there's, there is quite a lot of public spending in there I mean, it's very modest compared to what we thought was going to be in there, but but there's enough in there that your pretty Patels are going to be a bit like, well, why do we need to fund these, you know, the health service or the education system much more? Because, you know, it's not the government's fault that people are living in poverty, like she said in an interview recently Mm. when she was up campaigning in Barrow. Four out of ten children in parts of Barrow are born into poverty.
1: That's not good enough, is
2: it? Well, it's appalling. And of course, but everybody, and it's not just people in Westminster, it's not just at a national level, it's at a local level. It's the government, and you've had nearly ten years. Well, it's not the government, though, is it? I mean, everybody just says it's the government, as if it's this sort of, like, bland blob that, you know, you can just go and blame. So the government's not responsible for poverty? Well, it's, it's not, because it's all parts of society and the structures. Local authorities have a role to play, education, public services, which are locally led and locally run. It's sort of a strained Conservative manifesto because it doesn't really, I don't think it really pleases any of the factions and it doesn't come together or bind together in any sort of meaningful ideology. That said, this idea of trying to keep it steady as you go, safety first, is probably quite sensible from a Tory strategist perspective, considering what happened to the Tory manifesto last time, mm-hmm. where you speak to activists and they say that their reception on the doorstep changed overnight when that manifesto mm-hmm. came out because of the so-called dementia tax policy for social care that was in it. Um, and you'll notice an absence of social care policy in this current manifesto, even though Boris Johnson in his first speech as Prime Minister said, we have a clear plan that we've prepared. Um, we want to solve social care once and for all. That's That's nowhere to be seen. So we talked about what's not in it. What
0: is in it, Miata? That's a very good question. <laughs>
1: um, so I mean, look, they, they they they've sort of got commitments around increasing spend on the capital side. Um, they've got some modest commitments towards increasing day to day spend uh, to do things like investing in training nurses. Um, Creating um, 250,000 childcare places, Uh, so there are commitments in there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the thing that the thing I keep going back to is, you know, they they agree that the economy is not working for everyone. You know, Boris Johnson had the opportunity to just junk that and say, well, that was May's analysis. That's Mm. not my analysis. But actually, they haven't refuted that. They agree that. Um, They agree, uh, you know, the fact that we've got a kind of climate emergency. And you look through what I would call the kind of micro policies that they're putting out, um, which are essentially just restating things that actually they're doing in government. Um, And it's not that they're not doing anything, they are just restating the things they're doing in government. And it's that kind of poverty of ambition versus the scale of the challenge that is so striking. Mm -hmm. And for me, I hope it is an election strategy. I hope it's just, you know, let's get rid of the barnacles, let's not disrupt, let's keep the core message to get Brexit done, because that I could forgive. I don't agree with it, but I could forgive. But if it signals a paucity of ideas and solutions to the big problems the countries faces. For me, that's far more problematic because in the end, it doesn't matter who wins, we're going to have to confront this stuff. We're going to have to confront mm-hmm. wage stagnation. We're probably headed towards a recession in the next two years. We need a government that is clear about the problems and has solutions to them. And if they are out of ideas, if there's nothing in the cupboard, that is absolutely terrifying for me if they should win. Mm.
0: So just to, to pick up that point about maybe this is a strategy. So Douglas Carswell wrote this week, tucked away within the manifesto are hints of wider radicalism, to come. For example, on page 48 is a pledge to establish a constitution, democracy and rights commission to overhaul the way our governing institutes operate. So what what do you reckon is that can we believe Douglas Carswell that this is actually they're just kind of sliding some things in, but they've got a big agenda?
2: I think that's probably wishful thinking on Mm. Douglas Carswell's part. I mean, that's his that's his point of view, you know, that that's what he'd like to see a conservative party of the future bring for for a Tory like him. Mm. Um, And he's someone who you know, he, he's p- been pushing the party even when he was an MP and then he defected. He's been pushing the party to to go further on things like that for a long time. So I, I would probably take that with a pinch of salt. I think the one thing that you can really tell from the Conservative manifesto that this isn't probably a campaign strategy, it probably is a sign of intent for the future, is that triple tax lock that they've promised. Do you remember in 2015 when the Conservatives Probably didn't think they'd win a majority, and they really tied their hands like that last mm. time round. And they had to stick to all those cuts that they that they promised that were very radical—the thirty billion um, for welfare and all of these things that they thought maybe they'd be in coalition and it might <laughs> might water it down a bit. And it didn't. Now they've promised that they won't put up VAT, income tax, or national insurance. How do you fund public services in the future when you've made made a pledge like that, especially with Brexit? potentially round the corner, which could do all sorts of things to the economy, which means
0: that you will need to raise taxes to spend money. Mm. So what would their kind of their solid fiscal rules be? So I know we've mentioned like increasing spending for public services, but just in a kind of nutshell for listeners, what are the fiscal rules?
1: Well, I think they're going to try to do very little increasing of day-to-day spending. So that's, you know, spending on things like uh, nurses, um, but they will increase the amount of um, investment. So things like infrastructure, uh, hard investment that they put in to the economy. I I think um, you're right. I think the fact that they consciously went for the triple lock um, means that, They're clear they don't want to increase taxes to do any of the things that they have to. Um, They're also clear, actually, they quite like to cut taxes because essentially the national insurance policy Mm. is a tax cut. Um, And so it gives you a sense of the bend. And there is a tension there because we all know that actually our public services are on their knees. We know it's not just the NHS. We know it's across justice, it's across education. How they square that circle, I don't know. Mm. Um, but, but, but it is worrying if actually in the end we're talking about more cuts that would be justified by the fact that, you know, the economy shifts, etc., that they're not talking about now. But that they have got themselves in a bind. And it's whether it's a deliberate bind or it's by accident. But having been here before, it feels like it's more deliberate.
0: Mm, yeah, I mean, I just I, I, for me, I'm confused about the kind of economic consistency of this, or the, the the economic ideology that underpins it. Because obviously, you had earlier this year, you had Boris Johnson saying we're in July, saying we're going to cut corporation tax because then the wealth will trickle down and that and it will boost the economy. And then this recently, this month, announcing that they were actually going to not cut corporation tax because they needed that money to fund other things. <laughs> and that logic is so inconsistent. I just don't understand it.
2: Yeah, it's. Um... Yeah, it, it, it you can't reconcile those two things mm. can you? I'm kind and of I, expecting to, for you to unveil this massive I um, I also think it's there's a strange contradiction in the manifesto even in the pictures. So on the back of it there was a picture of those factory workers in Teesside that Boris Johnson went to go and visit with their big um, sort of cardboard placard that said we love Boris you know wearing their mm. sort of labor gear and I think that clashes with, um, with what's actually in the manifesto, which is very little increase in day-to-day spending, which would presumably sort of improve the lives of working-age people up and down the country who have been stuck in sort of either in in-work poverty or with wage stagnation and, mm. and the rise of the cost of living, you know, for, for so many years now. Mm. It's strange that the pitch that they're making, which is very much to those disillusioned Labour voters in working-class seats, doesn't match up with what they're actually promising.
1: And I do wonder whether probably underneath the surface there's a, a genuine kind of ideological tension for the Conservative Party, yeah, um, sort of torn between a part of the uh, the party that actually sees the challenges, it's trying to move towards kind of more progressive policy, trying to move towards um, increased spending, and then another part of the party that's like, hang on, we've made so many inroads in terms of pulling back the state. Yeah. We've made so many in- inroads in terms of uh, redefining what we think is important what, you know, fiscal and uh, financial uh, competence looks like, Let's not unpick that. And mm. I wonder whether in this manifesto and in this campaign, we're essentially seeing a battle that I think is going to be raging for the next sort of, two, three, four, five years as the Conservative Party starts to think, who are we the party of and what is it that we're trying to do for this country once we've got Brexit done or not, <laughs> as the case may yeah. be?
0: Anyway, moving on to Labour. So the Institute for Fiscal Studies has said that, that Labour's manifesto would be the most radical tax and spending reforms in over 70 years. So can you put some, this in context for us? How radical is the Labour manifesto?
2: So I think that they want to increase day-to-day spending by £95 billion. Is that right, when you add the WASPy Women pledge. Uh, This was the pledge to um, reimburse those over three million women who lost out on their state pension payments, women born in the 1950s because of the accelerated rise in the retirement age under the coalition government. So that, you know, that just suggests that they want to completely change the size of the state. Mm. To put that in context, the state has been sort of shredded because of the austerity agenda over the past 10 years. So maybe it's not as radical, (laughs) you know, (laughs) as radical as that figure sounds because it's it's trying to clean up some of the, the mess of that of that policy. That's left sort of public services in in tatters in some places, and also if you look at sort of how much France spends or how much Germany spends, that's not so different from how much um, the Labour manifesto is aiming to spend, mm-hmm. and they're functioning capitalist economies. So you know, to put it in that context, it's not some big scary yeah. huge change for the country. But I suppose in terms of British politics it's the kind of policy that people would hear on the doorstep and, and not expect. You know, they've not heard those kind of huge figures before.
1: Mm. Yeah, so I'd agree with that. And I think there's sort of two sides of it. So I think actually in terms of public spending, uh, so at the moment we spend about kind of 39% of GDP um, in terms of public spending. And Labour are sort of talking about another 5%, which puts us to about 44%. And when you compare it with other kind of Western European countries, it's pretty much on average. So actually, in the grand scale of Europe, this isn't that revolutionary or radical. It's just because we're coming from a wow. really low baseline. But the really interesting space to me then is actually the reform agenda, the sort of structural change that they're also talking about. So, yes, spending is part of it. But actually, if you think about some of the things that they're talking around ownership, um, trade union power, power in the workplace, um, a four day week, uh, you know, there are lots of things that are aimed at trying to begin to shift and drive and change the structure of the economy, that Mm. is really radical, uh, because I think at the heart of it is a very different vision of how the economy should and could work, um, Mm. which is a huge departure from where we are. So actually on public spending, where all the political debate has been, actually not that radical at all, but actually some of the other things that we haven't been talking about, I think within that sits quite an interesting agenda um, for fundamentally trying to change the way the economy works. Can
0: you like kind of offer as a bit of an explainer on in the Labour manifesto, who actually would be taxed more and maybe how much and what does that mean?
2: So for, for taxing people, they're saying it's the top 5% of oh. earners. So that's over earning over 80,000.
0: Not uh, if you're that guy. Yeah, not if you're <laughs> that guy, you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, he, he did not think that. Right. Bless him.
2: Um. <laughs> I am one of them people
0: that he will tax more. And I am nowhere near in the top 5%. So I'm calling you a liar right now that 5% is a lie right i am nowhere near that and you are
2: going But to you know actually, actually what he said him and I did write an article about this, what he said really does tie into the truth about the way that voters perceive inequality. So even if you're earning what, what that man on question time was earning, which was 80,000 or over, you don't necessarily perceive yourself as someone who's in the top 5% of earners because you surround yourself socially with people who earn the, the same
0: amount of money as you. Let's just be clear. So you're suggesting you would raise income tax on those earning over 80,000 pounds. You're saying that would affect you because you earn over that sum? Yes. So you earn I mean, over £8,000? Yes, and I'm not in the top 5%. Mm. It,
2: that, I think that is the no, top 5%, isn't
0: it? I'm not. Every doctor in this country earns more than that. Every doctor, every accountant, every
1: solicitor earns more than that.
2: We have those values so embedded in us, the idea that it's a meritocracy, for example, or the idea of social mobility. Actually, those things don't actually work in practice, and there's all sorts of class privilege, you know, prejudice, um, considerations for the reasons, and health considerations Mm. as well, for the reasons why you might not necessarily get to the stage where you're earning that salary. But people are so embedded with with this idea that if you work hard, you earn a lot, or you earn more, that they... They're not necessarily always enthusiastic about that idea of taxing the rich because they themselves imagine that they could one day be rich. And this was Mm. the problem with Ed Miliband's um, mansion tax in 2015. That was a popular policy, according to polling. But then when push came to shove, you know, people... It depends on how you how you pitch it to voters as well, but people didn't seem to get on board with those p- policies that were intended to try and do something about inequality in this country. And I think that's the problem with Labour's manifesto here is that while it's costed and, you know, while it wouldn't hit that many ordinary working age people, it's the way it's being sold to them. So this idea of bashing billionaires, I don't think that really works because of the British psyche and the way that we see... Fairness. Yeah, I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's that's
1: what I pick up from people I speak to. Interesting, Miata. What do you? What are the numbers? Actually, I think it's about forty percent of the burden of uh, paying for increased spending sits with corporations. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in part, uh, Labour's decision not to, um, you know, cut corporation tax rate to get it up to twenty six percent. So, it's basically gone down from about twenty eight percent under the last Labour government to twenty one percent and then 19%, and the Conservatives were going to cut it further. And actually, they're like, we're going to pull it back. Again, uh, to put it in context, that puts it middling with other countries. So, you know, Germany's corporation tax is 30%, France is 31%. So it's not huge. But it is then requiring quite a lot of the burden to sit with businesses. Um, and actually, they're going to then strip away a lot of kind of tax reliefs um, and subsidies that go to businesses as well. Um, and then the sort of final bit, and, and where I have a lot of sympathy, is that increasingly, actually, inequality in this country is driven by wealth inequality, not income inequality. Mm. And yet mm. we don't tax wealth. We don't tax wealth at all. So, Can you just explain what that means? Yeah. So if I um, am earning £30,000 in income, Um, I pay about 32% tax. Mm -hmm. Um, If I'm earning 30,000 as a dividend, um, either because I own my own company and I pay myself dividend or, you know, I have a share, I pay 8% tax. Wow. So is that the same on property?
0: Like if you get it from properties you own?
1: Capital gains. So Mm. it's such a huge discrepancy, particularly when you allow that increasingly, you know, partly with the property market, but also with other assets, you know, more and more people are accumulating wealth through assets rather than through income, and yet we just don't tax it properly. So actually, one of the things that they're talking about is rebalancing it. I think the question it does open is I think you could probably get away with the first parliament shouldering the burden of doing, you know, spending essentially 95 uh, billion on the top 5% and on businesses, you could probably just about guess away with it. And I think you can justify it by saying, actually, was it right that at a time when we were sort of putting the burden of austerity on those that could least work, you know, least afford it to be cutting corporation tax? Like it just, something really about the fit. Fa- it doesn't yeah. make any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I think after the first parliament, it becomes quite hard to sustain that argument And in the end, I think there does need to be a conversation that says, you know, if we do want things like universal basic services, if we want, you know, universal access to NHS, social care, childcare, and we think this is important for our society, then actually everyone should be willing to chip a bit more in order to do Mm. that. And actually what we get from it collectively as a society far outweighs the cost. You know, that's how we made the, you know, the logic of the welfare state, the logic of NHS was all predicated on pooling our resources and doing things collectively is far better and yes some people in society will gain more from it and will use those services more but collectively we all have something we can tap into and in in truth they have tried to duck that argument because who has that argument in the course of a general election campaign right (laughs) Uh, but in the end that is the conversation that we need to have if you want a different type of state and welfare provision actually we all have to be willing to pay a little bit more for it
0: okay all right so let's let's move on a little bit to look at the specific pledges in the manifesto we've talked a little bit about them already but uh, inclusive ownership fund so what, what's that about and how would it work we, we do listen I have an episode on this specifically but I just yeah how, how in line with this kind of how radical thing that we're doing here how radical is this inclusive ownership stuff
1: so it is potentially really radical um, and actually it comes out of um, an idea that uh, NEF kind of pushed out um, about 18 months ago and the basic uh, premise of it is actually all the evidence tells us that businesses that are owned by their employees tend to outperform traditional businesses so of the cohort that we have it tends to lead to better work engagement it tends to lead to better, better worker retention um, improved productivity increased profits so you know our argument has always been there is something inherent in the model of employees having a stake in a direction in their company that is good for businesses it's good for the employees it's good for UK PLC um, but it's not happening organically. So, you know, employee ownership and employee ownership schemes has been something that's existed for years. And what we found is that it's been used to pay top executives, mm. uh, but not to pay ordinary workers. So what the idea of the employee, uh, employee ownership scheme or the employee inclusive ownership fund is, is essentially to say, look, a share of profits will be paid to workers in a fund and it will transfer ownership over to them and they will hold it collectively. Um, And, you know, the proposal that's been talked by uh, Labour is to say, well, look, it'll basically be capped at a kind of 1% transfer every year, which is the same as we currently exist, that currently exists for executive pay, um, up to 10%. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what that does is that actually it creates quite a potentially powerful pool that is worker owned. So if 10% of a company is owned by workers, Mm -hmm. if you think about things like management buyouts, actually it suddenly becomes quite tricky. So it's about it's not just about the fact that it will yield dividends and a return uh, to workers, but it's the voice and the stake it gives them in the direction of the business for me that is potentially transformative. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the thing that then Labour has kind of added to it is to kind of apply a cap that says, actually, the most that you can be paid out is about five and then everything above that, we basically pool into a social fund. And I think the manifesto says that that social fund will basically be ploughed into paying for apprenticeship, green apprenticeship levies, um, I think is where they ended up with.
0: Mm. okay all right so that's inclusive ownership let's have a quick chat about social security because you know it's a tuesday night and had some wine (laughs) Uh, so the economist francis coppola coppola i'm so sorry francis said on twitter today that there are no practical proposals for benefit reform just vague promises in the manifesto to replace the dwp and abolish universal credit and there's no talk about reversing cuts or anything like that this is an ending austerity what do you make of that
2: Well, in the Labour manifesto, it's quite interesting because that's where the rhetoric and the reality slightly clash because they've been saying that they will scrap universal credit, which Mm. is the sort of uh, notorious and infamously flawed uh, welfare system um, that the Conservatives introduced. What's interesting is when you actually look at the policy detail... The Labour Party want to change everything about the policy that people who work on the front line of those services and people who use universal credit say is wrong with it. So one of the big problems with it is the five-week wait that's built into it by design. So when you move on to universal credit, you have to wait five weeks before your first payment, which is sort of driving up food bank use and just putting people, you know, into precarious situations, potential evictions, etc. So that's one of the big problems with it. There's all sorts of other problems with it as well. And Labour has sort of laid out all of that it wants to reverse or change all of those things. So it looks like a radical reform of the system rather than scrapping it altogether. But because they've said they want to scrap it altogether, that then leaves them vulnerable to the accusation that actually they haven't proposed anything in its place
0: okay, um, and
2: you know so that's the problem that's mm-hmm. the problem with the rhetoric versus what they actually want to do but if you look at the charities the food bank charities but also the system advice bureau people who help people with their benefits it's all of the changes that they've been calling for for a really long time
1: that's remember
2: right. when the the un inspector came and and inspected poverty yeah. in the uk hit one of his big things was universal credit and its flaws
0: miata social security
1: so, yeah, I mean, look, it's, it, it's strange because I think there is a big gap. You know, labour signals, um, minimum income protection, but they don't really flesh out what that looks like. You know, for us, this is an area that we're really interested in uh, because we've been doing quite a lot of work as to what actually minimum income protection could look like. Um, and we think in part it's about, you know, what we call a weekly national allowance. So this idea that whether you're in work or out of work, there's a kind of basic income that you get. Like uh, a UBI? Yeah, not it's like-, like a UBI, not okay. like a UBI, but it's a kind of minimum income floor that says, actually, there is a floor below which no one should be able to fall. So that's enough income that allows you to make sure that you can feed your kids that probably allows you to kind of pay your energy bills and that's something that everyone should get irrespective of whether they're in work or out of work and where we cap it is at the kind of very top end um, of earners and then alongside that actually thinking about a wholesale overhaul of universal credits um, in part plugging the funding gap that means it doesn't work in the way that it does, that it should do. So the idea of actually a single payment um, that's aligned and it's easy for users is the right one, but we just haven't funded it in the right way um, and we haven't provided some of the kind of protections around sort of childcare that we need to. So we think that actually if you combine a different version of universal credit with a weekly national allowance, we could probably get to the sort of social security system that actually is fit for purpose, particularly when you imagine that we're moving to a Towards the labour market where increasingly people are going to be in and out of work a lot more than they have done traditionally. And at the moment, none of the ideas that have been kind of muted quite gets there, but we think we might have the answer. Mm.
0: Okay, we're almost there with the labour manifesto, but I want to touch on the civil service. Um, so one of the questions that's come up is whether the civil service uh, will have the capacity to deliver the scale of spending and reforms um, that, are, that we see in the labour manifesto. Um, do you reckon the civil service
1: will be up to the job? Um, So, I I think there's a huge challenge. So, if you think about the programme that Labour has set out, you know, you just think about their kind of nationalisation agenda. I mean, that in itself is an entire programme for government just in one area. Yeah, the admin. So, it's hugely, hugely (laughs) ambitious. And I think the truth is, it will require quite a step change in the way that civil service work in order to deliver it. Um, so, you know, when people talk about, you know, can we deliver, I, I think it's going to be a real, real push. But for me, the opportunity, and this is where I think actually the Labour manifesto and prospectus fall short, is that if you try and do it all through national, state, and national levers, I don't believe you can drive forward a radical reform agenda, which is why I think devolution is a really big part of the story. Thinking about mm-hmm. how you use uh, local authority institutions, but also so how you use you know new forms of organizations like cooperatives that were all community organizations in order to drive some of this change and at the moment there's a hint of you know centralization central state is the main vehicle for driving this and the central state will not have the capacity to do everything they're trying to do. So, mm. you know, you think about something like the broadband policy. Well, yeah, you can try and achieve that through a national state or actually you can have municipal broadband, which has been hugely successful in a lot of um, different countries. So I think part of the quandary as to whether there's a capacity at the centre to do this is the extent to which you use different tiers of government, but also other organisations, you know, cooperatives, community, third sector organisations mm. to be part of driving the change that you're trying to create. In the economy, and that's where I think they missed a trick. Mm. So it's similar to the argument embedded
0: within universal basic services, which is it wouldn't just be a state kind of a new state operation; it would also be, as you say, bringing in all these third parties.
1: The only way you can deliver it. Mm.
0: Okay. In comparison to the, with the Conservative manifesto, what are we? What do we see on in terms of borrowing and uh, and spending in the Labour manifesto?
2: Well, I think that you know, the Conservatives have cottoned onto it slightly later than Labour, but borrowing is cheap now. So they they've both changed they've all all the parties have changed their fiscal rules, I think, apart from maybe the Lib Dems, I'd need to check that. Mm. On um actually no, I think they all have, on um not capping borrowing in the way that they used to. So I think I think that they they're all
0: happy to spend on infrastructure projects more than they have before. General top lines on the Lib Dem manifesto. What jumped out at you? What did you Yeah, what did you think?
2: What's interesting is that you can really tell where the Lib Dems are targeting by their manifesto because I think the IFS said that they're now the only one of the main parties that um, wants to keep national debt falling as a percentage of GDP. So they're trying to sort of position themselves as the sort of financially or fiscally prudent party compared Mm. to these sort of what they thought would probably be the spending splurges of the Conservatives that actually didn't really play out and the Labour Party as well. So Mm. the majority of the Liberal Democrat parties target seats are conservative seats. So that's probably why they've gone for that top line. And then they've really, really bigged up their unique selling point on Brexit, which is that they'd want to revoke Article 50 if they formed a majority government. Um, And they have this 50 billion uh, remain bonus that they say would allow them to spend more money if we didn't leave the European Union. So that's... I've
0: heard about this. Yeah, that's
2: sort of central to their (laughs) pitch. Yeah, I mean, that money... Yeah, anyway. Mm. Um, (laughs) So... The reason why they've they've had they have the Remain bonus is because they think their big sell to voters is their is their position on Brexit. They're the only party that really can say vote for us to stop Brexit. Mm. They thought that was going to be really attractive, but actually that hasn't really played out in the polls. And Jo Swinson at the beginning of the campaign was positioning herself as the next prime next minister, prime minister yeah. and now they've had to row back on that, and they've sort of conceded that there might be a Conservative majority in order for them to switch to their position of if we if there wasn't a Lib Dem majority which let's face it was always quite unlikely Mm. um, they would be the party pushing for a second referendum so they've gone back to that sort of people's vote position that they had in their manifesto last time round which is really interesting because when you speak to voters no matter where you are in a Remain seat in a London seat people don't like that revoke policy it just doesn't feed into that sort of yeah
0: people just mainly see it as anti-democratic yeah
2: yeah it doesn't fit into that idea of fair play that you know
0: most voters generally generally voice
2: yeah Mm. and that idea of the Liberal Democrats, even their name being hypocritical because of oh,
0: yeah. the Democrats of that. lots of people bring that up. So that's backfired, I think. Interesting. Uh, Miata, what are the fiscal rules in comparison to uh, Conservative and Labour in the Lib Dem manifesto?
1: So very prudent. So I think they are trying to kind of position themselves as a kind of sensible, in the middle, kind of centre ground um, party. Um, the areas where I actually I think they have done, said um, and um, interesting things is on childcare. So that's a big, okay. big, big policy where they're essentially looking to hugely expand uh, the free childcare offer, getting something a bit closer to a kind of universal um, childcare um, offer um, and actually haven't got as much as I think they should do because... I always find it really strange that childcare isn't more of a political issue um, because actually anyone that has kids just knows how expensive and what a complete nightmare and actually how completely kind of inadequate our system is we talked about it last week on the pod there you go there you go so you know so I think for me that was a kind of big selling point for them I think um, their housing policy 300,000 homes a year uh, 100,000 social housing again I think was really strong and actually you know again on climate change they came they've come out strongly. Now, you know, I would argue that 100 billion is probably quite short of what we need to kind of spend and invest. But, you know, the fact that they tried to make that a big plank, I think, um, again, was positive. And I think the real shame is they haven't really got anything out of it. Um, Unfortunately, their kind of manifesto launch uh, coincided with the kind of Prince Andrew story. So I don't think they've actually got any cut through for, you know, a handful of policies that actually does do a bit of kind of differentiation for them. So what we've heard is that the Lib Dems
0: are the only party that are still committed to austerity and haven't kind of completely kicked it off. Um, Yeah, what do you reckon? Do you buy that?
2: I think they've been hinting that in the things that they've been saying in interviews. Jo Swinson and her deputy, Ed Mm. Davey, have been sort of making hints at that in order probably as a sort of austerity dog whistle to those Tory voters in softer Tory areas who attempted to vote for the Lib Dems but aren't sure if they're yeah. quite right-wing enough or sort of economically hard-headed enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't think that's quite true because they were probably expecting the Conservatives to turn the taps on public spending, but they actually haven't in their manifesto now. Um, so I think they've kind of lost that that
0: yeah, differentiation fun, yeah, one, that they were trying
2: it? to set up. Um, and Joe Swinson got an absolute hammering on her record on austerity during the Question Time yeah, debate, that. and I think a lot of people feel that because they associate her with the coalition years.
1: I'd just like to ask you, with 14 million UK citizens now living in poverty, do you regret consistently voting with the Conservatives in favour of harsh and uncaring benefit cuts? And how does that put there was any kind of alternative to the Conservatives? I mean, I absolutely recognise the issue that you're raising, and the bottom line is that there are far, far too many people in our country living in poverty, and life is too hard. And we did not get everything right. So should we just look at
2: your voting record? In government, you voted. I don't think it's worked in their favour to try and suggest that they're sort of, you know, business as usual on mm-hmm. public spending. Mm, interesting. And they're not. You know, you just laid out the the pledges in in their manifesto that they're, they're not. So.
0: Okay, so it's kind of just more keeping that door open, just in case. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's
2: it's a gamble. Will it work? Will it speak to the right voters? We don't know yet, but it doesn't look like it so far.
0: All right, let's stay with the, some of the smaller parties for a little bit. So, um, just just on the SNP. So, ha- have what what are the Tory and, and uh, the Conservative and Labour stances on a on a second Scottish referendum?
1: Well, I mean, so uh, the <laughs> Boris Johnson has said he won't. Contemplate or countenance one, so it's just off the table. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn has said uh, not in the early years of the parliament and then when uh, pushed, he said uh, the first two years, which is sort of strangely specific. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I guess he's thinking about the kind of the next um, uh, Scottish uh, election, uh, where if the SNP got a sort of thumping majority, that might be a mandate. I mean, I think it's really interesting because I think the politics of um, UK, Westminster-based politics politicians telling the Scottish people that you cannot have a say on your future, it's completely mad, because all Mm. it does is fuel the independence cause. Um, And, you know, know, if you wanted to kind of push people into the arms of Nicola Sturgeon, you tell them you can't do something. Mm. And what I find really strange is none of the parties, you know, rather than say you can't have an expression of where you want to take your country, where is your counter to independence? Why is no one talking about a federal system? Why is no one talking about radical devolution as an antidote to independence? You know, none of them are. So, you know, rather than saying, fine, have the vote, but this is why we will argue for the union and this is what it looks like, they're Mm -hmm. saying, don't have it. You know, you're just fueling the cause for independence. And, you know, I I don't understand the political strategy behind it. I've never been in, uh, in order to understand it. Not a single manifesto has anything about the Scottish question. Not a single manifesto yeah. is talking about radical, you know, devolution to Scotland. So fine, you stay as part of the union, but you have the autonomy that you want. Like, that has to be the answer. Mm. And we're just not talking about it. Yeah. And it's bonkers because it's coming. It's, and, a big, yeah. Yeah,
2: it's a big oversight. But I think one of the reasons is because that's that's one of the areas that was thought to have scuppered Ed Miliband when mm. he was running back in 2015. Mm. When the Conservative um, sort of line on Labour was that they would be working with Nicola Sturgeon and that really put off a lot of voters a lot of voters for whom the union is really important and I think Jeremy Corbyn is almost making that same mistake again when he said in two years um, and was strangely specific about the Scottish independence referendum and also when they were both asked Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn in that debate about what was more important the union or I can't remember what the question was but um Boris Johnson was like, the union, of course, always. I think it was the union or Brexit. And mm. Jeremy Corbyn didn't give quite, a, quite as straight an answer to that, which I think was a big mistake. Because it is, like you say, it's a big thing in this election, but it's also more important to people than than you think. Is the union more important from, from, than Brexit, Mr Corbyn?
1: Yes. Our country is obviously very,
2: very important and we have to bring this business to a close and that's thank why you. we're proposing a trade deal with Europe or thank staying you. in, one Mr. or the other, uh, as a way of bringing this issue to a
0: close. Thank you, Mr Johnson. Mr, <laughs> Mr. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Let's, let's be... Uh, the, the union is, of course, the most important thing, just to answer the question uh, straight. So. The union, and it's a fantastic thing... All right, other smaller parties. Greens, what are they saying? Brexit Party, what are they saying?
1: Uh, so the Greens have gone, as you'd imagine, huge on uh, the climate emergency. So they're talking about a Green New Deal, uh, again, an idea that uh, has been pushed by uh, the New Economics Foundation as well as other organisations. So we're happy about that. And actually a big, big spending pledge. Uh, so 100 billion um, a year in order to kind of make um, a Green New Deal a reality, uh, which is huge. Yeah, And to be honest, probably the kind of scale of investment in the medium term we need to be getting to. There's a question about how quickly you ramp up to that. Um, and the extent to which you can actually deliver Projects at the scale, um, at that scale in year one. Uh, but the sort of ambition is absolutely right. And actually, I think it's really good to have them in the mix because it kind of, if you like, allows other parties to benchmark themselves against that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you compare their 100 billion a year to the Lib Dems, 100 billion over Parliament, and you start questioning, you know, where the kind of the scale and the quantum of action needs to be. Um, mm. So, yeah, but big area for them, I think. Yeah, mm. and they've shown
2: the Labour Party up on the yeah. Green New Deal as well because of course Labour voted through a very similar uh-huh. policy at their conference, but then they had to water it down in their manifesto, as they've had to water down other things that their members pushed for, like abolishing private schools is one of them, and also extending um, free movement to non-EU migrants as well. So both of those didn't really make it into the manifesto in that in that wording. So mm. that's, that's where the Green Party can be really strong, pulling left-wing parties further to the left because they feel like they're outflanked um, by the Greens, but also when those parties chicken out, being that that radical choice for 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 people who perhaps, you know, on the on the left side are a bit mm. disappointed by some of Labour's compromises.
0: Mm. We should touch upon the Brexit Party. Yeah. Uh, if they did get seats in a hung parliament, what would they want from Boris? What do you think?
2: So they've said a lot about um how they want to shock uh, reduce immigration. What? <laughs> <laughs> um, so their manifesto also makes a point of saying that the NHS should remain free at the point of use. Um, so obviously because they're trying to appeal to those so-called blue Labour voters in the seats where maybe there are those voters who can't quite stomach voting Conservative, but they will vote. They may vote for the Brexit party. So they've, mm. they've kept that in there. But then there's the question of how do you protect the NHS if you're going to reduce the number of migrants who come to work in this country, many of whom go
0: and work in the NHS. Mm. So there's that contradiction um, but and, yeah. and, and Farage is, is talking about standing down people in, in areas to kind of make way for Boris, but, the, but Johnson, the, but he doesn't need a... He needs more seats, right? So he needs to win Labour seats, so that is not particularly helpful.
2: Yeah, I mean, they've got themselves into a mm. real... <laughs> Mess. Yeah. I, I'm surprised, actually, for for Nigel Farage, who's such a good political operator, that he didn't sort of see this dilemma coming. Because yeah. they, they didn't say anything. When the election was announced, they didn't say anything for a while. Then they said they'd run in every seat in Great Britain. <laughs> and then they decided to halve that number. And then they were only sort of running Brexit Party candidates in Labour seats. And th- some of those have unilaterally decided to pull out um, so there's Canterbury in Kent, which is a lab- very, very slim Labour marginal. And there was going to be a Brexit Party candidate there running as their only party in Kent. But then they realised that they were taking votes off the Conservatives who can, easy- who could, you know, otherwise have a path to winning that seat. So he mm. stood down. So it's been a bit of a complicated mess. And I think they've, rather than having time to devise... In fact, their manifesto isn't even called a manifesto; it's called a contract. um, In inverted commas. So rather than having time to devise a properly sort of a proper policy offer, they I think they've been embroiled in strategy.
1: Mm. Yeah. And for me, the kind of the contract, um, and I'm going to try and resist uh, having a rant, but you know. (laughs) my big frustration, and I think the contract sums it up, is that, you know, the Brexit party, yes, is about Brexit, but Brexit is a process, right? So Mm -hmm. once we've Brexited, then what? Like, what are you trying to do for the country? Where are you trying to take the country? How are you going to solve any of the problems that, you know, people face, everything from living standards through to climate change? And the fact that amongst themselves, they couldn't even muster a manifesto to kind of set a pathway, I thought was hugely indicative. Mm. Um, And, you know, instructive as well, uh, because, you know, Brexit is not a policy or future for the country. It's just a process. You need a whole lot of stuff Mm. afterwards. Mm. And it's not clear to me that they have any sense of what that stuff is. Mm. Just before we move away from the small parties, Anoush,
0: obviously the, the Northern Ireland parties played a, a, an important role in the last government, the DUP supporting the minority conservative government. So what are some of the key things that are going on in Northern Irish politics that might influence this?
2: Well, what's really interesting is actually the leader of the DUP in Westminster, Nigel Dodds, his seat looks, you know, up for, up for grabs in Northern Ireland. So that mm. just tells you quite a lot about... Um, how Northern Irish politics is in flux over there. Again, the the future of the union comes into that because, like you say, there's been a surge in, well, uh, according to the polls, it looks like there's a surge in support for parties that represent the nationalist cause. Um, So that could change the makeup, if if we want to look at it from a Westminster perspective, that could change the makeup of the House of Commons quite dramatically Mm. um, after the election. And as we know, because the DUP has well semi being propping up the conservative party we know that that could have really big implications if we have a hung
0: parliament so that's a really important you know thing to watch mm okay so we're, we're coming to a close almost almost we've spoken a little bit about it already but i feel like it's really important that we dedicate a little bit of time to climate right now so looking across all the manifestos starting with you miata what is being said about climate um and before the election some people kind of said that this would be the climate election is that
1: prediction coming true so i don't it's not quite The climate election, but my goodness, climate change has crept up the political agenda. Mm. So if you compare with 2017 or 2015 or 2010, I mean, it's right there up and centre. And actually all the political parties have made and felt they've had to make pledges on climate change, which I think is huge testimony probably to a lot of the kind of work that's been done by campaigners and activists, a lot of the momentum on the ground and the fact that this is now a massive issue for voters. You know, we we would always argue that we need far more pace and ambition, but actually there is a shift and there is a move. Um, So, you know, the 2050 uh, commitment, which, you know, doesn't go far enough, but, you know it is an advancement on where we were before that we're not talking about net zero uh, by 2050. We need to bring it back and we need to keep pressure on doing that. But if that's, if you like, our lowest, you know, point, actually Mm. that is a win in the grand scale. And actually the other parties, the Lib Dems, have committed to 2045. Labour is saying in the 2030s, the Greens are saying 2030. So the kind of pressure is applying. They're all talking about big investment in order to kind of unlock climate. Mm. Um, So I think really positive. I think the big question will be not, the policies, not the kind of intent, but the action. Mm. And I think that's where the kind of the movement that's mobilising that has applied pressure so that this is now up in the public consciousness have got to ramp up. Because if we don't start acting, it's all well and good to talk about broad brush commitments. If we don't start acting, if we don't start driving policy change, we're not going to do what we need to do. And that I think is a real battleground going forward. Mm. And it's just from your kind of door knocking experience and talking to people—is climate on the agenda?
0: Are people talking about that?
2: I can't say actually that I've heard that many people bring it up sort of organically on the doorstep um, so far. Um, and I think you know um, an extreme example of that was when Jeremy Corbyn mentioned that the poorest people in the world oh, yeah, will be affected, and, and he was sort of, "Oh God, here Jeered we go again." I yeah. That's so you know, it's the most massive issue facing the whole world when the poorest people in the poorest countries lose out, because of flo- lose out because of flooding and unusual weather patterns, when we have unusual weather patterns in this country. When we have extreme- My reporting and that debate is not representative of the country at large, and the, and the climate crisis is much higher on people's priorities than it ever has been before. But I wouldn't say that any of the parties really have been successful in making this the climate change election, like was sort of you know, was we, we sort of predicted beforehand when Extinction Rebellion were mm. um, were in London doing all of their different um, actions it seemed to be on top of even, you know, conservative ministers were were, were saying that it was the top of their agenda and being asked about it in every interview. And it seemed to be a real shift. I think since election campaigning has kicked in, sort of gone back slightly in terms of what candidates are saying to people on the doorstep and what and what they're hearing from people as well, which is a bit of a shame. But of course, politics is about leading. It's not, it's not just about, you know, hearing what, what people say and, and echoing it back in the House of Commons or or it's trying to underplay things just because it doesn't necessarily affect someone's day-to-day life mm. in that urgent way that they'll say it to you on the doorstep, like they will about potholes, for example.
0: Yeah,
2: but um, it's a December election. I do think effects of climate change will actually play, whether it's conscious or, or unconscious, because you've seen the effect of the floods mm. in in the Midlands and mm. and in Yorkshire as well, and. Boris Johnson had a really hard time when he went up there to go and speak to people whose houses have been destroyed by he them. He does
0: have a hard time everywhere, to be fair. Yeah,
2: he does. He gets a hard time everywhere. But that was—I think—that was a real moment where you thought the effects of climate change are really going to drive the way that people vote. You know, whether or not it happens this election, I'm not sure. But even if it's not conscious at this point, I'm sure there are people who have suffered during those floods who mm. who will take that that experience to the ballot box.
1: And it's interesting. So we've just done some polling looking at the 40 kind of critical uh, marginal seats in the Midlands and the North, asking them about, you know, how climate is playing. And actually, you know, 70% of the people that were polled said that climate change was a kind of decisive factor for how they're going to vote in the election. Um, So it's definitely a kind of, it's definitely a feature. And I think probably the proximity around flooding probably is also kind of playing into it. But again, I think that this is a new norm. Uh, So expected to have it to be having more and more of a bearing on our politics as we go forward. Mm. Okay. That is all we've got
0: time for this week, I believe. I'm going to let you go because I know we could stay here and talk about this all day. Thank you so much, Anoush Shekelian. Yes? Yes. 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 Still (laughs) remember it it after all that (laughs) uh, for being here. People want to hear more analysis from you of the election. Where can they go? Where can they find you? Um so you can go to the dot com or you can listen to the New Statesman
2: podcast, um and you can read our weekly magazine as well, which is sold in most shops.
0: Wow, so mm. everywhere. Okay. Everywhere. What? I'm everywhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> amazing. And Miata Pambula, um, head no not head, chief executive also head I don't know just like powerful person <laughs> um, at Neffen in the world if people want to keep up with you and, and
1: find out more about all the stuff you're doing how can they do that uh, so go to our website uh, neweconomics.org uh, um, follow us on Facebook uh, and on Twitter um, as well as I'm on Myatzef, um on Twitter as well and then you can see what we're up to okay amazing uh, so that's actually it for this
0: series as well lovely listener we will be back in 2020 um, the Weathier Economics podcast is brought to you completely free and without any mattress adverts by the New Economics Foundation. NEF is a charity and does lots of wonderful research and campaigning to help make the economy work for everyone. So if you've enjoyed this series, please support NEF's work with a monthly or one-off donation by going to neweconomics.org/donate. We'll put that link in the description for this episode. Lovely listener, it's also our final ever episode from our fantastic producer James Shield, who has been with us since the beginning. Uh, We we love him and we're going to miss him so much. Wonderful, wonderful, beautiful angel man. Thank you for being here. (laughs) Leave it in. Thanks for listening. Lovely listeners. We'll see you in 2020.